The following is a presentation of the Belly Up Sports Media Network. Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we'd go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. Coming up on the Behind the Mic Podcast, what did a former Negro League shortstop and the Los Angeles Rams have in common? Give up? Well, if you listen, I'll tell you. You're behind the mic with Michael Neal Jr. All right, I'm finally back on schedule. It's Tuesday. I have my stiff pieces of notebook paper from my new notebook, and we're ready. NFL historians and lovers of sports history, welcome in. This show is for you guys and gals, not for you know-it-alls. If you know it all, congratulations. No cookies here, but there's always someone else who does not. That's why this show exists for those who don't know as much about NFL history. So we are here to enlighten, teach, and learn. It is the Behind the Mic podcast. I am your host, Michael Neal Jr. This show is presented by Belly Up Sports. Also, the Belly Up Sports podcast network. Billy Up Media, BillyUpSports.com. Go to it, click on it, check out the merch as well as the stories, the articles that are written. Got some pretty good writers out there. And you can catch all of our shows on our home base of Megaphone. Also, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and everybody's favorite, YouTube. I think my daughter watches that more than she watches cable TV. Yeah, I mean, we do get cable TV through YouTube, but she watches that more than anything. Uh, that and TikTok. Okay, so yesterday was Juneteenth. I mean, and I knew it was coming up. So I kind of wanted to do um, a, a theme show. Sometimes, you know, you try to go along with that. But I had a really good idea that I thought of. Uh, I think it was probably not until Saturday, like Friday or Saturday, that I, you know, really have an idea i mean i have a list of things i keep a list of things but sometimes you want to kind of go on theme and juneteenth is what it is the celebration of the end of slavery of course blacks were enslaved for years okay we was brought over here on a boat it was a bad bad terrible inhumane situation that african americans were in it got a little bit better after this but then too you know <laughs> The struggle was still, even to this day, in spite of you know, us coming up, it can still be very real. But there in the 1860s, not great. Civil War was going on. They were fighting basically, hey, this, we're going to free these, sell, it's these slaves. And um, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed by Abe Lincoln. It was supposed to do the job, right? Well, January 1st, 1863 didn't work for everybody in the Confederate armies, in the Confederate states. They didn't want to follow suit, right? So um, not until, near, what, two years later, June 19th, 1865, General Gordon Granger, he takes his troops, rides down to Galveston, Texas, and he issues General Order 3, basically ending slavery for good. No more slavery. You're free. You got to let them go, right? Uh, and, and that was great. I mean, it's still a celebration to this day. Thank God it is actually a, a federal holiday as of what, uh, the, tw- the of 2021. I wish I could be off work like, you know, maybe I should have worked for the government. Federal Express, that don't count. <laughs> it doesn't, it does not count. We just carry that lane, that name. But that, I mean, and even in that, yeah, blacks were freed, 
but that didn't mean that they had to like it. So you have Jim Crow laws, segregation, all of these evil things that came about afterwards. Uh, it's like, oh, we got to let you go, but that don't mean we got to like you or we have to allow you to to pee where we pee, go to school with our kids or even sit in the same movie theater or even walk in the same interest as us. So you have Jim Crow laws and you have the segregation and all the evil things that went on even after that, after slavery was abolished, was put away. Right. And, you know, sports was no different. You know, we were still playing some college football. Not a lot of us on the same team unless you went to an HBCU. But sports was no different. Um, Major League Baseball wasn't having it at all. Right. Um, Of course, I have a book. It tells about all of the different sports that African-Americans and blacks were involved in. Take horse racing, for example. We had plenty of black jockeys at one point, And I guess until they got tired of losing to us, that was supposed to be inferior to them. And then you come up with these clubs, which we were excluded. So no more black jockeys. Just an example. Um, and in pro football, of course, in 1920, the NFL started. You go all the way back to the first 17 before there was an NFL, of course, you had Charles Follis, uh, you had uh, Fritz Pollard, Paul Robeson. This is after the league was established in 1920. You know, Duke Slater and um, Ray, Ray Kemp, uh, Joe Lillard. And then, of course, the unofficial ban between 1934 and 1945. There was no black players. And why did that happen? Well, I mean, <laughs> you had a... a Funny thing happened, George Preston Marshall, who was the racist owner of the the, the Boston, uh, what was the Boston Redskins, he changed the name when he got into the league, forgive the name please, um, historical show, historical show, 1932, he comes in as an owner of the, the Boston Redskins, and of course, you know, he has some really great innovative ideas, you know, to get, because he was a showman, yeah, he made his money, you know, the laundromat business, you know, with the, his father had started, but he also was in entertainment. And college football was a little bit on the dull side, but it was still more popular than pro football. People laughed at pro football. Major League Baseball was on top of that. But they wanted to try to gain the attention of fans and grow the game. Well, yes, let's throw the football more. Let's move the goalposts forward and let's move the, the lines to give them a little bit more uh, field of play, but also off the books in those league meetings that were held were what you had to know it was him that put the idea out there. Well, if we have less black players and be just like Major League Baseball, we'll become more popular. Terrible idea, but whatever he said, it worked. It over drinks or over cigars, or whatever it was, outside of that big long table that they had those meetings at, that's what happened in the end. And from 1934 to 1945, there were no African-American players. So, no no rest for the weary. Fast forward to 1945. The Cleveland Rams had their first winning season and they won their first championship. And of all teams they beat were... George Preston Marshall's Washington football team in a, what, 15-14 negative degree weather game that, uh, you know, Washington, they lost off of uh, 
a crazy rule where Sammy Ball's throwing the football from his own end zone. It hits the goal post, and when it hits the goal post and bounced into the end zone at that time, it was a safety. Not to mention the fact that they missed two fourth quarter field goals. The Rams not only had their first winning season at 9-1, they had their first championship in Cleveland. They were the Cleveland Rams. Well, you know, ouch. <laughs> that, that hurts. Um, but that would be the last time that Washington would see a Marshall-owned team would even see a championship. Yep. Two tears in a bucket. Well, so around that time, you know, you still have no African-Americans in any professional sports, the highest level. Again, professional baseball was in the league. They, along with college football, they were the creme de la creme of professional sports. That's where people were going to see. That's what they paid to go see. And the NFL was a league that was really struggling. Well, like I said, blacks, African-Americans had to make their own way. And they did some things with Fritz Pollard. I've told you before about how after there was an ouster of African-Americans in professional football, they went and started some of their own semi-pro football teams. And one of them was the Brown Bombers. And a guy that actually played for the Brown Bombers for a short time actually played in the Negro Baseball Leagues that go all the way back to the 1880s, the late 1880s. I believe it was 1887 to be exact. It wasn't called the Negro Leagues, but it was the Negro League Baseball, the Professional Baseball League. And that was one of the things that had to be started in order for them to continue to play professional sports, football or baseball. And this one guy that did play for the Brown Bombers, according to one source that I read, I, I think that it's credible, but I believe it was more of a research paper. Um, but he did play for seven seasons for six teams in the Negro Leagues. And this guy was a pretty good athlete in his own right. And his name was William Claire Haley Harding. And I know you've heard me mention this name before, Haley Harding. Um, this guy was born in 1904, Wichita, Kansas, and he was a college football player and played halfback, quarterback, and he was also a punter for Wilberforce University. He bounced around to a couple other colleges, including uh, Wiley, Wiley College, but also Fisk University here in Nashville. Played seven seasons of college football, by the way, okay? He also played a uh, little professional semi-pro basketball for the Harlem Renz or the Harlem Renaissance. I believe it was named for either, was it a restaurant or something like that? I should have did my research a little bit better. That's terrible, ain't it? But uh, they were before the Harlem Globetrotters. Okay? They was kind of the, the the precursor to the, the, the team that we know so well today. Well, in 1926, he had his professional baseball debut, his Negro League debut with the uh, Indianapolis ABCs. And again, he played seven years, including playing with the Kansas City Monarchs. He was a teammate of Satchel Paige. And he had like a real long stint where he was out of baseball. From 1931, he played, but from 32 to 36, he was out of it. 37, he played his final season with the Philadelphia Stars. Um, and he, he lifetime batting average of 297. All right, so that's according to baseballreference.com. And I mean, the guy was an athlete. He was a very outspoken guy, from what I've read. 
He was cocky. He was confident. But he was a really good athlete. Well, he after his playing days were over, right, he took after his mother, Anna Harding. And she was an agent slash reporter for the Chicago Defender, a very prominent black newspaper at the time. Harding decided to be, Haley Harding decided to be a sports writer for another prominent newspaper, the Los Angeles Tribune. So, with that being said, this is a guy, again, an athlete that was outspoken. Uh, he, I, when I thought about, when I read about him, I thought about Steve Smith. That's kind of what I thought about. Some of the stories that I read, one of them was how he was, uh, you know, in the Negro Leagues. One pitch, you know, he he was almost hit by a ball. He knocked it away with his hand. And when the guy actually, the pitcher, Kate, was running at him to, to apologize, he actually went after him with a bat. Supposedly, he chased him down the street, and they was going to suspend him if he didn't allow him back into the park. So this guy was wild. He even, uh, I think he... he hate to say led a revolt but I, something was being done wrong while he was in college and I, I, I guess the starting offense or something like that there was some starters there was a disagreement and you know I think that led to him moving on from Wilberforce as a matter of fact I'm not totally sure about that uh, exactly what happened but all I know is I read that he led a somewhat of a revolt against so, you know, obviously, there were some things that were being done wrong that he didn't like, and so he spoke up on it. He was not a guy that was going to sit on his words. Everything that I've read pointed to him being a sports writer that called people out. Almost kind of like a, I guess, like I said, I think about Steve Smith, and I hate to use Stephen A. Smith. Like, I mean, and I know there's people out there that dislike Stephen A. Maybe it's because he's loud. But, I mean, I like Stephen A. Um, do I agree with everything? Of course not. But he was a guy that was going to point out and call you out as if, and I kind of hear it almost like Stephen A. You are terrible, you know, or, or do you need to do better with this. And when it comes to African-Americans and how they were treated, the opportunities that they did or did not have. And he was writing about things great and small, you know, in any sport, especially with baseball, which you know, he had a tryout actually with the Chicago Cardinals, didn't make the team um, in in the NFL, uh, but they were not allowing blacks to play in Major League Baseball. So he would call out whoever he needed to about whatever injustices were being done. And then you see another one that you obviously knew that, hey, you know, there were some things going on in the NFL, which he had tried out for, and there weren't a lot of blacks playing at the time. And then at this one point where he's now a sports writer, there have not been any any players in the league. So he has started, I'm guessing, somewhere between 1937 and 1938. Did not get an exact date. It just said once his playing days were over. So you fast forward to 1945 going into 1946. So after this Cleveland championship, their owner, Dan Reeves, not Dan Reeves, obviously, <laughs> that was the coach for the Broncos, Falcons, and Giants, but the owner of the Chicago, excuse me, the Cleveland Rams wants to move to L.A. He's dissatisfied with things in Cleveland. I mean, but can you blame the Cleveland fans for not showing up for games? Well, one, the league was kind of weak um, in, in trying to grow 
but then two, you just had your first winning season. And after this championship, you said, you know what, it's time to go. All right, no problem. Well, there was a problem. They were gonna play in the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, okay? But there was a little something that was waiting on him. And that person actually was in the form of Hallie Harding. And Harding saw an opportunity because you already see these injustices in baseball and you seen them clearly in football because if you tried out for the NFL and then you play with the Brown Bombers, why are you playing for the Brown Bombers? Because you can't play in the NFL because they're not allowing you in, right? Well, the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum Commission meeting was to be held. Basically, they're considering Dan Reed's request to use the Coliseum for the Rams' home games. So I told you before how Harding made the point to let Rams management know that the Coliseum is a publicly owned property that is financed in part by not just white money, but also minority money as well. Now, these are my words, okay? And basically, you let the owner, Dan Reeves, and his general, more, uh, general manager, Charles Child Walsh, know that you can't possibly play here unless their team is integrated. And he did this with a very impassioned speech, which I'm going to read to you from a book that I'm reading right now. I'm finally getting to it. It's the one that was written, co-written by Keyshawn Johnson and Bob Glover. It's called The Forgotten First. It's talking about Bill Willis, Marion Miley, and of course, the first two to integrate pro football, which was Kenny Washington and Woody Stroke. Well, here's the speech. And I quote from, again, The Forgotten First. Thank you, Mr. Commissioner, fellow commissioners, sports writers, concerned citizens, and fans of football. I come here to speak for many in this room and in the African-American community. We all know that baseball is a national sport and that football is its neglected stepchild everywhere except here in Los Angeles. We have two fine semi-pro football teams here, the Hollywood Bears, and the Los Angeles Bulldogs. We have players of all races and creeds on those teams. It is our way here in the West to give every person a chance to succeed and excel. You can't even see this. You can't even see this at the college level. Three quarters of UCLA's 1939 backfield were Negroes. We always had integrated teams out here in the West, but unfortunately, that is not the case everywhere in our great nation today. You will not see a Negro on any NFL football field, maybe as a janitor or a water boy. The NFL is segregated and has barred Negro players since 1933. It wasn't always that way. We had many, many Negro ball players until that fateful year. Charles Fallis, Fritz Pollard, Rube Marshall, the great Paul Robeson, Duke Slater, Joe Lillard, and Ray Kemp, who was the last Negro player in the NFL before the door was closed. There hasn't been another now for 13 years. We all remember that great UCLA-USC game back in 1939. Kenny Washington, Jackie Robinson, and Woody Strode held the Trojans to a 0-0 tie. We were all so proud when Kenny went to play in the All-Star Game of 1940 in Chicago. He scored a touchdown against the Green Bay Packers. And many of the players who were on that field with Kenny 
were invited to play on NFL teams, but nobody invited Kenny. It's a shame, a shame. America fought Adolf Hitler because he was a racial supremacist, yet our army is still segregated. We fought a civil war against those who believed that Negroes should be enslaved and excluded from society, yet exclusion still exists. Even our Declaration of Independence tells us that all men were created equal, yet opportunity is still not equal. We cannot allow a segregated NFL team to use a stadium paid for by our taxes. We cannot play segregated football here in Los Angeles. It's just not our way. I oppose any team that will not give our citizens an opportunity to try out, an opportunity to be included, and an opportunity to play. Thank you, he concluded. Thank you very much. I mean, you can't put it more bluntly than that. And I just quoted again from the book, The Forgotten First, written, co-written by Keyshawn Johnson and Bob Glaubert. I mean, that this was the kind of guy that he was. He called you out and told you exactly what it was like, what it was. Didn't bite his tongue. And his at the conclusion of his speech, it was met by many in the room with applause. That's how they explain in the book. And I think that his point was about as clear as crystal. And it worked. And that his speech was actually compiled some years later by Woody Strode's son, Kali. Now, both the commission president, Leonard Roche, and commissioner, John Anson Ford, backed Harding for his speech. And the former actually delivered his own message about standing against racism, according to uh, Johnson and Glover. Now, what were the results of this? Well, the Rams GM, Chow Walsh, he said that there will be tryouts for any qualified Negro football players. And he also met with Harding and other black sports writers to discuss these things further, okay? Former UCLA star Kenny Washington, he did get that tryout, after, and this was after his contract was bought out through Harding's help from the Hollywood Bears. So that was supposed to be a chink in the whole situation. Yeah, you know, we may not be able to sign him because he's no, Harding already worked that out with the owner of the Hollywood Bears. And months later, on March 21st, 1946, Walsh purchased Kenny Washington's contract from the Hollywood Bears and signed him to the Los Angeles Rams. And the story behind it, I think, is really cool. After he, he got signed, you know, he's like, okay, well, he was the only African-American on the team. And so it's like, you know what? We want him to feel a little bit better about things. You know, maybe we need to get him a running mate or a roommate. And so, uh, and I've told you, okay, it was a, you know, he wanted Woody Strode and they didn't want to sign Woody Strode uh, for some reasons. But I actually got the, 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 the blow by blow from this book about how it was explained through Woody Strode, what, we, what he was told, how it went down. I guess Kenny Washington was the one who told him. And so the story behind it was that, you know, Kenny Washington and, and quarterback Bob Waterfield were out working on some of the things on offense because, you know, it was a difference between the T formation that they were, they were playing at UCLA and what the Rams were doing. And so he, uh, 
Walsh comes out there to talk to Washington and he shows him this list. Hey, look, pick somebody that's on this list and, you know, we can go, you know, get somebody in here that not only can play, but, you know, they'll be your roommate. Well, he was like, okay, I I'd like to have Woody Strode. I said, well, Strode's not on the list. I said, well, I mean, that, that's who I want. That's basically what he was telling him. And basically, Child Walsh was saying, well, we can't bring him in. And the reason why, well, one, they threw out his age. Well, they was, I guess they were kind of almost the same age, I think. Uh, just remember, college football players, that this is seven years after they finished college. So they were in their 30s by now, I believe. 28, 29, almost 30, something like that. But you put the age out there. Well, he's too old. And also, he's married to a Hawaiian woman. I mean, that that that's not cool. <laughs> and he told him this. This is the reason why we can't sign him. And, so, and, and Kenny Washington told him, well, if you don't, then if you don't bring him in, then you don't have me. And uh, Walsh was, was heated. And matter of fact, it said Kenny Wa uh, Washington tore up the list <laughs> and went on about his business. And then he asked Bob Whitter, Waterfield, like, man, what do I need to do? And Waterfield told him, you put Woody on the team. And that's exactly what they did. They signed him on May 7th, 1946. They, they gave him a one-year deal. And then a year after that, see the domino effect. A year after that, April 10th, 1947, Major League Baseball would integrate. The Dodgers GM, Branch Rickey, we all know about that. If you keep up with baseball history, signed Jackie Robinson another UCLA Bruin that was playing on that team back in the 30s. So, I mean, that that's pretty cool. And the one who lit that fire was Hallie Hardy. I don't think if he doesn't get up and he delivers that speech, and I mean, he wasn't the only one that was saying these things. There were other black sports writers, other black newspapers that were saying some of the sim some similar things. But him going especially delivering that speech at that commission meeting that did it that definitely did it and, and here's the thing with that signing it didn't even stop there the team that replaced the rams back in cleveland of course they were the browns and paul brown that summer would sign bill willis and then later on marion motley two future nfl hall of famers and they were in the All-America Football Conference, the, the AAFC, right? Well, you know, there were more African-Americans that would begin to sign with these teams in the AAFC. And then the thing was, LA got another team, you know, through the AAFC, the Los Angeles Dons. Who remembers actor Don Amici? He was the owner of them. They were named after him. Uh, and... Uh, Harding turned his attention to them. And it wasn't until the next year the Don signed their first African-American, Ezra Anderson. He was a receiver out of Kentucky State University. And then you had more and more that soon followed. Well, some of them, I think, were signed a little bit before him. Maybe it was alphabetical order in 1947. Claude Young, Horace Gillen went with the Browns, Lynn Ford, Joe Perry, and many, many more. It was a great domino effect. Eventually, you had more and more African-Americans, whether they were drafted low or high, they entered pro football. 1965, you got your first black official, Burrow Toller. More black quarterbacks were accepted. And today, the NFL is about 57, I thought it was more like 70, seems to me. But they say it's more like 57% African-American. Not to mention, 
all the other minority groups represented it on the field, the sideline, and also in management. But we still need some people in ownership. So, I mean, Chow Walsh, you know, good job signing those boys back in 1946. You were the first ones to do it, even though Motley and Willis were the first ones to play because they're the Browns schedule started a week before, I think it was a week or two weeks before the NFL schedule, but it all worked out. Hal Harding, you did it. You were the man. You were the man. References, that's it. Thanks to seamheads.com, baseballreference.com, also nfl.com, the reintegration of the NFL. Great article. Uh, also, the, the LA Times, the Los Angeles Times, this one by Nathan Finos. He's a staff. He is a staff writer. January 18, 2021. This one was called In Football Stadiums and Ballparks. He fought for the rights of black athletes. Also, a hard road to glory. Back in my books, the African-American athlete in football by Arthur R. Ash Jr. And also the Forgotten First by Keyshawn Johnson and Bob Glauber. This has been the Behind the Mic Podcast. I am your host, Michael Neal Jr. This show is presented by Belly Up Sports. Also, Belly Up Sports Podcast Network, Belly Up Media, BellyUpSports.com. Again, go to that website, click on it, check out the merch as well as the, show, the shows and the writers. The stories are pretty good. We have some good writing. And also, you catch all of our shows on our home base of Megaphone, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, you know, the favorites. Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. Tell all your friends and family about this show, or you know I will find your house. I'm out.